This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Talking about working for a living, a very good month for the labor market, 224,000 jobs added during the month of June. To break it down for us, we welcome our next guest, Chris Liu. Chris is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, and he is a former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Certainly a very good print coming across this morning. What is your takeaway? Yeah, it was good, and I think it surprised a lot of people. And look, we used to always say, you know, don't let uh, be don't be fooled by one month. And I think uh, though we were all probably a little bit fooled last month, and probably overreacted to that, and we're probably overreacting in the other direction this month. But it's certainly good, and it's more important to look at the overall trends. Uh, it's about 172,000 um, uh, for the last three months, and uh, that's pretty good actually at this point in the recovery. It is slowing down though. Uh, the job market. The only question is how fast it's slowing down. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the implications for the Federal Reserve stemming from the labor report. We haven't dug as much into the labor report itself, and I would love to get a sense from you. What were the highlights? I mean, in other words, what can we take away about specific sectors of the economy that are either accelerating or decelerating faster than others? Yeah, so um, two surprises for me. Uh, manufacturing was up 17,000 last month. Construction was up 21,000 uh, last month. And both of those sectors had been slowing or actually down a little bit over the last couple of months. I think particularly manufacturing something we look at uh, as we think about trade wars. And President Trump benefited from a pickup in manufacturing jobs his first year in office, and that really hasn't been the case the second year. So we'll have to see again whether that's a trend or not. Um, retail uh, jobs uh, continue really kind of a long uh, decline, uh, and the question really is is whether there's enough uh, in terms of online shopping that can make up for that. And then I think on wages, uh, the year-over-year growth was 3.1%, which was below expectations. And, you know, for people like us, for people like me who come out of the Labor Department, uh, yes, jobs are great, but we want to make sure that wages are growing so that workers are feeling uh, a difference in their uh, weekly paycheck. Chris, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up the wages because it seems odd to me really over the last uh, six months or so that, you know, given that we're at or near full employment, not to see wages increase even more. What do you make of that? Yeah, no, so this is really, again, we talk about the surprises in this economy. This is confounding the way that a lot of us have thought about job markets and uh, a tighter job markets should normally lead to higher wages. And, and that hasn't happened. Um, and it hasn't happened in part because I think we are increasingly in a global economy. Uh, automation is taking away a lot of low-wage jobs as well. But I, it, to me, it also suggests that we maybe are not uh, at full employment and what our conception used to be uh, may need to be rethought right now. Um, and again, you know, if you talk about longer-term issues, um, we've got too many people stuck in low-wage, minimum-wage jobs. The minimum wage hasn't gone up uh, now in 10 years. We need to obviously do more in terms of uh, job training. And then the other interesting thing that had really has not changed much is labor force participation, which really over the last five years has been kind of stuck between about 62 and 63%. So 
Um, yes, more people are coming uh, off the sidelines, but not really as many as you would think, given how tight the job market is. So, uh, Chris Liu, you were a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Uh, President Trump has talked a lot about how uh, President Obama had a fantastic backdrop because interest rates were zero. He's sort of facing this uphill battle because interest rates are 2.5%. They're no longer zero. And I'm wondering, do you think that if the Federal Reserve were to cut interest rates here, that that would give the extra juice necessary to uh, get even more people into the labor force and possibly increase wages more? You know, to me, it seems like an artificial way to do that. I mean, I, I think when you look in a broader sense, I mean, where President Trump is wrong, uh, interest rates were zero, but we were also in the middle of the Great Recession. You know, the very first month that President Obama took office, the U.S. economy lost 800,000 jobs. And so given the magnitude of where we were, that was one of the important financial levers at our disposal or at the government's disposal. You really don't need to use that right now when the unemployment rate is 3.7 percent. And so to me, it feels, you know, as he's trying to use his bully pulpit to talk interest rates down, it feels to me like a a kind of an artificial way to pump up the economy, but it doesn't really deal with the structural issues uh, about how to grow wages and how to keep this uh, economic expansion going. So, Chris, just real quickly, 20 seconds. Do you see a recession in 2020? We're hearing more of that. Uh, I think we will see a slowdown. I don't quite see it as a recession, but I certainly would not expect unemployment to be at 3.7%. Uh, I think that will steadily rise over the next year. Chris Liu, thank you so much for spending time with us on this post-July 4th Friday. Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Always a pleasure having him on. His insights are welcome. And I think it's important to talk about just the specifics of the jobs report in tandem with the implications for the Fed There are some material slowdowns, albeit not as much as people expected. Uh, And there were some surprising points of strength, particularly in manufacturing. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, because we've we've been hearing some, uh, you know, weakening manufacturing data over the last several months, both here in the U.S. and then certainly abroad. So to see some job strength there was uh, certainly positive. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. Maybe a lot of people are feeling that way on this July 4th weekend, watching the wheels go round and round on one of the highest gas consumption weekends in the American year. Joining us now to talk about the state of oil and all things commodities, Alex Nussbaum, energy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Can you just give us a sense of the rocky road that we have seen for oil over the past six months or so. Just give us a sense, you know, a half year mark, where are we? Right, it's, uh, it's sort of been three different markets. Uh, we started the year on a tear after uh, a really an epic slide at the end of last year. Uh, OPEC and Russia agreed to uh, some steep production cuts that brought oil back up. Then about late April, when Brent was about $75, the U.S.-China trade talks uh, collapsed and that sent oil down with it, really reopened a lot of the concerns about the economy. And then in June, uh, you started seeing all these tensions rise in the Middle East. Uh, Iran downing a U.S. spy drone, and oil started rising again. So we'll see where we go in the second half. So what is the sense, you know, when you take a look at the oil markets in the first half of the year, it's, you know, it's always a supply and demand type of thing. But it just seems to me that the demand side of the equation is kind of the more important of the two right now. It seems like when the market feels like, gee, global growth is slowing, you see it immediately in oil. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nothing this year, not these uh, OPEC plus production cuts, not 
uh, the tensions in the Middle East, not more sanctions on Iran and Venezuela. Uh, you know, they have all given us temporary boosts, but nothing has been able to break the sort of gravitational pull of these worries about growth and, and where we're going. And that's really held oil back the last few months. You know, one thing that I find interesting is that the Federal Reserve uh, rate cut, how does that play into the price of oil? On one hand, there isn't an obvious correlation, except that uh, there is a correlation with the dollar and a stronger dollar could mean weaker oil. How are you sort of uh, viewing the chance of a rate cut with respect to how that affects oil prices? Well, it's complicated, as you point out. I I know. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah. Uh, there's a good answer, right? It's complicated. Yeah. I'm done. Uh, you know, Thank I think, you so much. Have a great rest <laughs> of your weekend. Yeah, I think the thinking among most investors is if a rate cut uh, you know, boosts the economy, then that'll be good for oil. That's the way most people have been playing it. But yes, if, if the dollar goes up, that usually uh, you know, pushes down on anything that's priced in dollars, including oil. Uh, but I think most people are hoping for a rate cut on the oil side. So Alex... Again, we'll switch over to the supply side. It seems like there are potential chokeholds there. I mean, I know the, uh, you know, there's a, some a problem with some Russian oil, the contaminated oil. I know the uh, some certain pipelines, but it doesn't seem like the market's too concerned about supply. Is that simply because the market just assumes that the shale, the U.S. shale market, will fill any any gaps? Yeah, there, there's no concern about a lack of supply, uh, certainly because. Uh, of U.S. shale, first and foremost, you know, now at a, at a record 12 million or so barrels a day that we're producing. Uh, and again, OPEC and Russia and these other major international suppliers have gotten together and agreed to extend their supply cuts, which most people think will stabilize us on that side. And so, again, the question is, where does demand go? What about China? The fact that China has added to leverage and has actually reignited its economic engine to some degree does that play into this picture at all? Because I remember when people used to talk about China as a demand, uh, a source of, of great demand, and they don't talk about that anymore, even though we are seeing signs of a resurgence there. Right. The, uh, again, the worries about the U.S.-China uh, trade battle and how that will affect global growth have been a huge factor this year uh, in the oil markets. Uh, and many people think that the Chinese stimulus has you know, helped us avoid what might have been a much bigger crash at times. Uh, and... Where we go from here, uh, you know, the trade truce that we heard about this past weekend, um, you know, didn't provide as much of a bump as I think many people expected this week because it's uncertain how that's going to be resolved. Just real quick here, I'm wondering, how are hedge funds positioned heading into the second half? So for the last couple of months, hedge funds have really been sort of running away from oil. Uh, There was so much uncertainty uh, going in, especially to this last weekend with these two meetings between uh, the OPEC plus group and uh, the G20 with the U.S. and China. So they've been sort of getting out of the way, uh, for the most part, to where adding to shorts. Uh, we should see on Monday uh, how that positioning has changed since then. So we'll is there a, Real quick, is there a consensus where oil will end the year? Is there a consensus in the market, do you think? Brent's around $64 right now, and I think the feeling is that it'll go up a little bit. I think the latest forecast is about $70 by the end of the year. $64.02. If you want to <laughs> okay. know, that is, is, that, <laughs> that, is, that is exact consensus. Uh, Alex Nussbaum, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, truly a pleasure getting your insights. Alex Nussbaum, energy reporter for Bloomberg News. Are you going to be driving anywhere this weekend? Just driving home. Driving home. Luck and <laughs> staying in my hammock, hopefully. <laughs> what about you, Paul? Uh, I probably will be with the sh- going, going down to the shore with the masses. With the masses, yes. with the throng. So do you yes. leave early? What's your technique? Yeah, early. you got like to be on the parkway before 8 a.m. Before 8 a.m.? Yeah. 
And how does your wife feel about that? That's oh, fine. Yeah, anything to beat the traffic. Eight a.m. is reasonable. Honestly, yes. it's the yes. it's the it's it's what I used to do as a child when we'd get up and we'd get in the car by five thirty. That was always rougher. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host and colleague Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg Business Week. You've got to stand for something, or you'll fall for anything. ESG, that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it's taking a bigger piece of the investment pie. Investors are really paying attention to companies and their ESG scores. To help us get some uh, more clarity on this, we welcome our next guest, Melanie Adams. She is Vice President and Head, Corporate Governance and Responsible Investing for RBC Global Asset Management, which has approximately $330 billion under management. She joins us on the phone from Toronto. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us a sense of what are some of the current trends you're seeing in ESG investments right now? Hi, thanks for having me here. Yeah, just in terms of uh, trends we're seeing, I would probably focus on two that are um, that are the larger ones. One is just that you know ESG integration is picking up momentum at an incredible pace. We're increasingly being asked by investors and clients about ESG integration and what we're doing. Uh, in particular, institutional investors. We conduct a survey every year of our institutional investors, and we're increasingly seeing that they believe that ESG integration will help performance. We are seeing uh, an increased um, interest as well from retail clients with you know, a, a number of them asking advisors questions about this, although it's not quite at the same level as what we're seeing with our um, institutional clients. And the, the second trend I would, I would just touch on very briefly is that you know, while historically the focus has been on ESG integration in equities, which is because, partly because the ability to vote proxies and engage with management in equity markets, but now we're seeing ESG integration more and more with other uh, asset classes such as fixed income and real estate. So, Melanie, I understand the impulse, people saying, I'm going to invest my money. I would really like it to go to something that isn't wrecking the world and that's not performing badly, that basically is a good citizen. What does it mean to be a good citizen? I mean, how sort of how controversial are some of the ESG outlines that are uh, that are used to determine what fits in? Well, so ESG integration itself doesn't necessarily mean investing in a company that is having a positive social impact. What it means is that you are assessing all of the material, environmental, social, and governance risks of the company you are investing in. There is another form of investing called impact investing, where you are directing your money towards a particular social cause, as well as a, you know, a fi- financial performance as well in that area. Well, Melanie, ESG is very important, we know, to Bloomberg's clients. I'm just looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. It's one of the most widely used functions for financial analysis. And one of the tabs there uh, is ESG. So we capture a lot of the ESG data for the companies. So my question to you is, is there enough data, quality data out there for investors to really get a sense of which companies score better or worse? Not really yet. Uh, you know, we struggle with that as investors ourselves. What we look for is consistent, comparable data across companies so that we can see how a particular company is doing in comparison to its peers on various metrics. And we don't have that data quite yet. We're not there. We also know that some of the ESG scores from vendors that we rely on are not, you know, they, they don't necessarily have the same score across vendors. They're not necessarily correlated. So that's something that, as investors, we would like to see. We are seeing companies um, show an increasing amount of interest in 
improving their disclosures. And so we look forward to, um, to seeing more of that. So when somebody comes to you and says, uh, we as a client, whether we're an institution or a retail investor, want to incorporate more ESG principles into our investing, how do you respond? Well, we would respond by saying that we do do it right now across all of our funds and portfolios. We integrate ESG. We do look at all these factors. But then I think there's another conversation that needs to be had with the client um, about what particular, what are they looking for in particular? Because there's another area which is socially responsible investing. What this is is when you can screen out particular sectors um, or companies if you you know if you're investing in line with your values. So that's a little bit different from ESG integration, which we do across all portfolios, and it helps clients that have a particular if they want to invest in a particular manner. We can do that as well. So Melanie, are there certain sectors of the economy when you, when you go look at your investable universe, are there certain sectors that um, do better on just providing quality ESG data and helps you in your decision-making versus some other industries? I'm not sure that there's a particular sector that's better than others. Um, You know, we're we're bank-owned. I will say that the financials tend to be um, pretty good about this. They aren't all, they're not in the sector that has the, um, you know, the most ESG material, ESG risk factors. Um, there are some companies, though, that are definitely better than others uh, within a sector. So even in the oil and gas industry, there are companies that provide excellent disclosure on what they're doing in terms of their processes. Can it, like, you mentioned oil companies. Can an oil company, in theory, have a good ESG score? Yeah, so there are a lot of oil companies that have that are very clean that are you know implementing strong practices and procedures to invest in clean technology and to clean it up i know and you know i'm based here in toronto and in canada in particular there are a few oil and gas companies that are definitely taking this uh, very seriously and are, are you know particularly relative to their peers are doing a very good job you know, when we talk about adoption and institutions becoming increasingly uh, desirous of some sort of ESG incorporation in their investments, I'm surprised it hasn't taken off more. I'm wondering from your perspective, where are we in the adoption process here? We are behind Europe, for sure. Europe is a few years ahead of us. It has certainly taken off there. Um, I think in North America, though, we are about to see a real escalation of this as companies are really understanding um, what investors are looking for. And investors are really understanding that by integrating ESG, we can lead, we can, we can have better risk-adjusted returns over the long run. That's what I just wanted to go real quickly, Melanie, in about 20 seconds. How is the performance of ESG investing? Performance is good. Research has shown that the performance is good or better than that of a traditional fund. And it makes sense. Intuitively, if you're looking at a company, you're assessing all its risks. It it makes sense that it can lead to better returns over the long run. Melanie Adams, thank you so much for being with us. Melanie Adams, Vice President and Head of Corporate Governance and Responsible Investment at RBC Global Asset Management, which has $330 billion of assets under management, joining us from Toronto. ESG, definitely hot. Gaining steam, perhaps the U.S. a bit behind Europe, yeah. but definitely more people looking to incorporate that's exactly, those guidelines. You know, I'm interesting, it was interesting that Melanie said that, because that's when I first heard about it. It was talking to European institutional investors. They would ask me, so, okay, you're telling me to buy Disney. How's their ESG score? And I'm like, how many? You know, like, what? Um, so, was that a new movie <laughs> do you, coming up? Do you want, do you want a bud? <laughs> yeah, I've got, exactly. I've got a six-pack. <laughs> so, I immediately got smart on ESG, uh, but it's, it's certainly becoming more apparent. Well, and I will say that younger investors, there have been studies showing that younger investors 
are more conscious of this. So people who are in robo-advisory and, and sort of the independent advisory firms are, are trying to get more involved in this. Get it started for the weekend and also investing in startup companies, which is the reason why uh, we're talking about starting up. But right now we want to bring in Munjal Shah, Chief Executive Officer for Health IQ, joining us from San Francisco. Uh, Munjal, I, I'm so glad that you're joining us because we've talked so much about initial public offerings, particularly of unicorns or uh, sort of hot tech companies in the past six months. And one question that a lot of people have is, how do you know a winner from a dud? And this is your business. So what are the sort of the criteria in when you know you have a potential winner in a startup and when you want to invest? Hey, well, thank you both, first of all, for having me. Um, uh, you know, I think the real thing to look at is, is there really something innovative and different? There's a lot of me too things out there and you can get caught up in kind of the fervor of funding a me too number two or number three. But I think when you're looking at tech companies, you want to say, is there really fundamentally a new approach here? Or is there fundamentally new technology uh, that's enabling uh, those companies to succeed? So, Munjal, so far, 2019 has been a very good year for some big uh, IPOs, Uber, Slack, Pinterest uh, going uh, public. Um, what, as you think about it, what is the next class of companies? Is there a certain technology that you think is going to be uh, kind of be the source of the next group of companies coming to uh, Wall Street? I think there's a new wave of what's called insure tech companies, so kind of insurance plus technology. Um, and these companies uh, really are pioneering a wave of insurance that I call personalized insurance. So an example of a company like this is uh, Root, uh, which is not just looking at your driving record, but actually uh, you have an iPhone app that looks at you know, how hard you brake and how fast you accelerate. Uh, or a company like Hippo that's actually installing sensors in your house, um, particularly around leak detection because uh, floods and leaks kind of create a lot of damage. And so they're saying, look, we want to really personalize the coverage to the situation of how you drive or your specific home. Um, Health IQ is doing kind of the same thing where, you know, our core focus is as people who take care of their health, um, whose behavior is better, who drink less, um, who exercise more, who eat right things really should deserve a more personalized quote. We do this in life insurance, so not in health insurance, but in life insurance. Um, and a lot of this came from really my own personal story. I uh, was an entrepreneur, uh, sold my last company to Google, and actually the very next day I had chest pains, ended up in the ER, and said if I'm going to start a new company, it's really got to be something that encourages people to improve their health. And when you look at this whole new class of companies, um, you know, Hippo, Root, Health IQ, and there's actually many others coming down the pipe. Uh, it's a whole new wave that just says, can we use better data to price insurance more fairly, uh, particularly for the people who uh, take care of themselves and are lower risk. So given that you are an angel investor, I'm wondering how crowded the field is getting among other people looking to put their money to work at companies that might be the next, I don't know, uh, you know, PetSmart or uh, even Google or, or, or something like that. I mean, is, that, is it getting to the point where it's very hard to invest at the valuations that you find attractive? Um, you know, valuations are certainly going up. Um, if you look at Ruth, I think they recently raised around over a billion dollars. Uh, Health IQ, we recently did around at $450 million. Um, the, it is not a cheap market, um, but I think, you know, part of the answer is getting in very early. Usually when I do 
Uh, I angel invest as well as run Health IQ, and when I do do it, it's usually, you know, two guys, you know, an idea and a dog. <laughs> I mean, it's it's right. pretty early stage, and you almost have to try to get in a little earlier um, in order to uh, really avoid some of the run-up in valuations that I think is occurring, you know, largely because these companies are going public and are getting, uh, you know, double-digit billion-dollar valuations, and in some places even more. So, uh, Munjal, a couple of the higher-profile deals were Uber and Lyft this year. Both are still trading below their IPO price. One of the concerns that I heard, which I hadn't heard really for other Internet IPOs, was there's no clear path to profitability for those two companies, the, the ride-hailing business. Um, what, did, what did you think Silicon Valley learned, if anything, from this, those IPOs? You know, I think when you look at these IPOs, you have to differentiate the ones that – are losing money in total, but making money on kind of every widget they sell and the ones that are losing money on every widget they sell. And it's kind of a unit economics uh, sort of analysis. And what you find is there's two very different things. I mean, Google, for a very long time, um, before it started charging for ads, was just losing money um, when it was a startup. And it hadn't gone public yet at that time. But it definitely had a path to profitability because it created value. And over time, that value has definitely borne out. Um, but on the other hand, you do have some things, um, you know, WebVan in the old days in 2000, 2001 is a good example of that. These days, you have other examples as well where the thing loses money on every single widget it sells. And you're never going to make that up in scale. And so I think, you know, when you look at the ones that are losing money versus the ones that are making money, I would definitely look at, and see if you can get a sense of, you know, are they just losing money because they're growing so fast and investing, or are they losing money on every widget they sell and are just hoping to improve their margins later? But right now, the margins are super negative. Munjal Shah, thank you so much for joining us. Munjal is a chief executive officer for Health IQ, joining us on the phone from San Francisco, talking about startup investing, angel investing, uh, bringing some of those companies uh, to the public markets. Uh, Silicon Valley remains a very robust marketplace. More and more companies are staying private longer because the capital markets, the private capital markets are so deep, uh, you know, so they can delay coming public. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. We are heading into the close after a July 4th week. And interesting to see that the sell-off that had accelerated earlier today in U.S. equities has backed off. The Nasdaq poised to end the day one-tenth of one percent lower. S&P 500, two-tenths of one percent. At one point, it was nearly a one percent decline. Joining us now to break down the action, Ryan Dietrich. He's senior market strategist at LPL Financial, which oversees uh, nearly $660 billion. And he's joining us from Charlotte. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Right now, it seems like markets have repriced the idea of uh, how many rate cuts to expect from the Federal Reserve this year. And it seems like equity investors aren't that concerned about a less accommodative Federal Reserve. What's your view here? 
Well, you're right, Lisa. First off, thanks for having me back. And good luck to the United States soccer team on Sunday, right? There but you go. you're right. I mean, we had the big sell. That's right. We had the big sell off to start. I guess it's all relative, right? The large ish sell off to start off this morning. Everyone's kind of scratching their head. What does it mean? Well, the reality we think at LPO Research is we kind of put a stake through the heart of the 50 basis point cut that some people were expecting in a couple of weeks with the Fed. It's looking like a quarter, you know, 25 basis point cut is, is likely. But also the realization that, hey, we're not, in, we're not headed to a recession. I mean, you know, two, over 200,000 jobs is pretty impressive this late in the cycle. And let's not forget, you know, I did a thing back in history. It's been seven years, Lisa, that we saw two consecutive months sub 100,000 jobs. This is consistent where you get maybe a weekish print, and then employment picture picks it back up. And employment is the number one kind of driver for the economy, and it still looks pretty good. I know services are weak. I know manufacturing is weak. But employment picture is still good, and, you know, hey, what's wrong with an economy that's holding its own? We think it's a good thing, not a bad thing. So, Reiner, are you in the camp that thinks uh, a recession is possible or likely in 2020? No, we, we really don't think so. You know, when we look at things here, Paul, you know, this year, definitely not a recession. Even out in the 2020, we just aren't seeing quite the same worries and concerns. Yes, you know, we get it. Earnings drive long-term, you know, markets and long-term economic cycles, right? And we know the earnings season's coming up here. But look at the first quarter. I mean, what happened was everyone got all bearish. Everyone cut their earnings estimates. And earnings came in a little bit better than expected, slightly positive. We're seeing it again. I mean, companies are really lowering their estimates, the most we've seen since the middle of 2016. So it's kind of that low-ball mentality. And if you get any good news at all, and we think, you know, what is the good news? That's the big question, of course. Well, it very well could be some some more positive uh, path to resolution with China. We just think there's so much for each side to lose on that front that that can uh, lead us higher. And look at the credit markets, guys. I mean, the credit markets are what is going to predict a recession. They always do. Look at spreads and and, uh, high yields and investment-grade corporates, keeping it very simple. When I see spreads blow out, those predict recession. So without the uh, bond market, the smartest guys in the room saying they're necessarily worried about the economy, we're going to follow that. And we still think cyclicals and you know stocks outperforming bonds are really the way to go here for at least the next 12 to 18 months. So the music's still playing, so you might as well dance. My question is, how do you sort of monitor to figure out if perhaps things are softening so that you can get out before the crowd? Well, you know, yeah, that's, that's obviously a great question there. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about market technicals for a second, I mean, you know, if you look at deterioration and how many stocks are going up versus down, you tend to see that ahead of markets that really pull back. And again, looking at the NYSE advanced decline line, it just made a new all-time high. So, you know, that's telling us there's a lot of participation. So when you start to see things breaking down, that's when you should worry. Now, one thing in LPR research, it does have a scratch in our head a little bit. You know, things what's led this year? Utilities, real estate, you know, healthcare, some of those more defensive names that normally don't lead in a healthy bull market. And with the, you know, S&P up almost chip shot from 3,000, up 17, 18% for the year, we absolutely think the possibility for as much as a 10% correction sometime during the troublesome third quarter, which is usually the quarter you get most volatility, is very likely. But again, we're going to be buying that dip, not necessarily panicking, using it as an opportunity uh, for our advisors to potentially position a year-end rally. So, Ryan, uh, we are arguably late in the cycle. Should I be uh, pushing into defensive stocks here? Because I hear they're quite expensive. 
Yeah, we don't think so. Again, I mean, what we're investing in is we're looking at cyclicals, specifically financials, technology, and industrials. I mean, look at tech, look at financials. Last few days, as yield is starting to go higher, long into the curve, uh, continues to steepen, and industrials clearly are a play based on uh, you know potential positives as, as it potentially can come out of China and emerging markets. You know, everything's at new highs, right? Or right around new highs globally, honestly. The emerging markets still aren't there. And we look at the U.S. dollar. I know it's up today. We think it looks a little poppy potentially with the Fed a little more dovish. And we think that dollar goes down. The emerging markets are a place, guys. We're overweight in the models that we run for our advisors. And we think that's a place the second half of the year you can find a little alpha, some alpha performance. What about European equities? Europe, Europe is an area we haven't liked for, for the three years. I've been at LPL, and we're still in that camp. We still see the issues with Brexit. We still see the uh, demographic issues. It's just, you know, yeah, the global bull market continues. Hey, Europe's going to go up, and that's exactly what it's doing. But we are still underway Europe uh, due to some of those big structural problems that have been there for years, and we don't see them resolved anytime soon. And, again, late in this cycle, does that suggest large cap versus small caps? Because we have heard some – Advisors and portfolio managers saying, you know, small caps, that's probably one of the few places where there's value. Yeah, you're right. I mean, small caps clearly have been hit more so uh, in the last three or four months, no doubt. But we still think value, or the best value is going to be in large caps late in the cycle. You look back in 99, 2000, you look in 2006, 2007, large caps tend to do better than uh, than small caps. And again, you know, how late in the cycle are we? Again, we think there could be another at least a year or two potentially of growth. But large caps are we're a little bit overweight large caps relative to small. We like those cyclical and emerging markets, how we're positioning our portfolios. So given how positive you are on equities right now, do you think it's appropriate for the Federal Reserve to cut rates even once or twice for the remainder of this year? Well, I don't know if it matters what I think. It's what the market thinks, right? I mean, if you look purely at the economic data, they probably don't need to cut, but they've kind of boxed themselves in when you look at what the bond market's saying. And again, we look at now a lot like other people have said, 95 and 98. Those are those insurance cuts. In 95, concerns over the Mexican peso. In 98, concerns over long-term capital management, the hedge fund that went under. And you had the insurance cuts. Even the economy probably didn't need it. And that's kind of where we see things now. And let's be honest, you know, the, the Fed has dual mandate, right? Keep inflation under control and have the employment picture full. Well, they probably are the corner of the eye are looking at uh, the issues with China. And that's why we still think that it's likely we get a quarter quarter uh, quarter point cut. In 95, don't forget, you know, the Fed did have the, the dovish pivot in mid-95. And the manufacturing was very weak. Economy was slowing, even though the economy was a lot better the year before. And that sounds a lot like this year where we have that yeah. pivot. And, um, you know, one more cut in July is what we look for. And we think that might be it. But, you know, we'll see what happens. But we don't think the econ- economy can stand on both legs yeah. here. But, hey, it, it sure looks like the bond market wants a cut. And that's probably what it's going to get. Ryan Dietrich, thank you so much for being with us. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, overseeing nearly $660 billion joining us from Charlotte with a bullish call on U.S. equities. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.